If you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to pick it up uh, uh, beginning in uh, verse 43 uh, on through the end of the chapter, and we'll see if the Lord will bless our attempt. The scripture reads, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus and said, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent. He answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hand. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean. Your speech shows it. And he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we pray, God, that your word would be opened unto us. Lord, that we might see, God, we've, we've heard the story so many times, Lord, but God, I pray that they would not just be something we've heard before. That we place ourselves in the text, Lord, and we allow your word to do a perfect work in and through us. God, even as we face a coming new year and an in a unsure season before us, the world is is a little twisted and messed up. The answer lies before us in the text this morning. God, I pray that you truly would be Lord and Savior of our lives. And God, that you would move in this place in and through your word as we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we begin our study this morning with the betrayal. And as we look at the betrayal, remember last time as we talked, Jesus had gone away to pray. He was in the Garden of Gatshmone. And as he was there in Gethsemane praying, he three times came back to his disciples to tell them, Peter, James, and John, who he had brought away with him, pray. You need to pray. The hour of temptation is coming. There is a test on the horizon. You need to pray. But three times they fell asleep. Oh, they were tired. I know I fall asleep when I'm praying as well. But the third time Jesus came and woke them, he said to them, It's time. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's no pause from that statement to Judas walking up to Jesus. As he's speaking that to the disciples, as they're waking up, Judas and the 600 temple guard are already up there. Torches blazing. Things are a little confusing in the beginning. And and as Jesus, ready and prepared for the events that are laid out before him, it says immediately while he was still speaking, Judas... One of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a signal. Whomever I kiss, kiss of death. Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And so as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, look, that's not uncommon. That's a, that was a normal greeting in, in the Middle East. That was a normal greeting, especially a disciple to his rabbi. One who had been away, he would come to the rabbi. He would greet him with what, what Scripture calls a holy kiss. The Scripture says that Judas, he, he kissed him. The, word, the, the, the verb used there means over and over. There's like an emphasis that he's laid on it. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know if if you guys were all here when we looked at uh, Jackie Hills Perry's uh, poem on Judas. But I liked one of the lines that she had to say about Judas when she was speaking about him. She said, "It's, uh, it's easy to betray Jesus when you've kissed God goodbye in your heart. And so Judas comes and he, and he kisses. And it's interesting because, but Jesus has a response. Look what he says. They immediately, they lay hands on him. Uh, one near him drew a sword. Who's the one near him? We know, right? John tells us who it was. Peter's the one who draws his sword. And he tries to cut a guy in half. What was that guy's name? You guys remember? Bible trivia. Malchus. Malchus, right? Servant of the high priest. The other gospels tell us. And what did Jesus do with the ear? Put it back, back, right? His last act, his last miracle is healing someone that one of his disciples hurt. So we, we have this. Mark really doesn't get into it. Mark just says somebody struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. And Jesus said, have you come out as against a robber? They were with swords and clubs. And when, when Jesus is saying this, look, I just want you to see that, that Judas is intimate with the world, the kingdom of the world. He understands the kingdom of the world. Remember, when we look at the different times and the different expressions we've seen from Judas, when, when Mary is uh, worshiping the Lord, right? Remember the alabaster flask broken and Judas said, well, well why, why this great waste? It could have been sold. For years worth of, of wages and money given to the poor. There's a better way to do this. Why are you wasting it worshiping Jesus with it? When we look at it, Judas was intimate with the kingdom of the world, but Jesus wasn't coming to establish the kingdom of the world, was he? He was coming to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He came to establish something different. And Judas thought, well, he's a, a revolutionary. He's, he's going to bring a revolution. And how does every revolution happen? <clears throat> it happens by people taking up swords 
One group is stronger than the other group. They whoop them. They take over, right? And they establish another kingdom and they go on. And then, and then later on, somebody else comes to power. Whether right or wrong really is immaterial because they never really change anything. Doesn't really matter. It's, it's depressing to watch the debates. It's depressing to listen to um, the things that are going on because it's hard to find, you know, real hope going on. I've I've watched both sides, spent time looking at both sides, and and I pray <laughs> that God deliver us. But look, here's my point. There are, are differences between the parties, but at the end of the day, the man that's going to rule or woman that's going to rule, oh Lord, have mercy. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say it again. The, the person who rules is broken. They're broken by sin. They're damaged the same way every person on earth is. And what every kingdom that's ever come and, and brought revolution and, and, and taken over, and done, you know what, they still bring a bunch of broken people and they try to rule. And what happens? We've all read history, right? A lot of those revolutions, we look at, man, that was a really good thing. And then, you know, 50 years later, it's less good. And 100 years later, oh, now there's another group coming up to take care of them because they, somehow they lost their way. You guys get what I'm saying? But the, the end result, the reason we get to that, is none of those kingdoms really change the heart of man. But Jesus' kingdom. And I know Judas doesn't know that because he hasn't really given his heart to the Lord. He has never really received Him as Messiah, maybe as a revolutionary, maybe as another person to come into power. But he comes with swords and clubs. For what? How many times did Jesus told Judas and the disciples, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. He had told him in the Gospel of Mark, we read about it three times. Three times. Mark 10.33 is, is almost a perfect uh, replica of what's going to happen today. As we look at the scripture, so Judas, he's got no connection. He's connected to the kingdom of the world and how men do things. And really, to be honest with you, that's my big fear when we look at when we as believers get all involved politically, because now we're starting to try to do things in the flesh. And, sh- and how in the world are we going to complete in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? The need is spiritual. The need spiritual. Look, I heard President Obama the other day say it's a, a, a radical idealist that is the problem with, with Islam. I just want you to know, according to his definition, you are all part of that group too. You're just not part of Islam. You're a radical idealist. Especially if you believe the Bible is true and that it should be authoritative in your life. That's the stage. Pieces are set. They're on the table. And they're moving. But the need, the need, is what Jesus came to give. His kingdom. Because what did His kingdom do? It turns everything upside down. Do you remember the, the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, who in the world would ever say that? Jesus is the one who can point out the need in the human heart and really turn it right side up. And Judas doesn't understand that. He brings swords and clubs. It's like Jesus, Jesus looking at, at Judas and saying, What did you think? I'm a terrorist? What am I, a gorilla? I'm an insurgent? Did you come with 600 soldiers? And clubs and swords. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think I'm going to do? Look, Jesus is saying, I've come to bring real revolution. 
I've come to bring a new kingdom. I've come to do something that no other revolution has ever done. And that is affect the area in the life of man that really needs to be changed. That was the new covenant. To take out the heart of stone. And give us a heart of flesh. To put his law in our hearts. To be our God to move in and through us. But then Jesus said, but so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, look at Isaiah 53, 12 says, therefore I will divide with him a portion of the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He, he gets arrested just like a common thief with soldiers coming with swords and clubs. So he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Zechariah 13, 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. What's the next thing? The next verse says, And all forsook him. Everybody leaves. Everybody leaves. We see everyone leaving, everybody running. They all forsake Him. And we think, why are they leaving? Why are they running? Because they're afraid of the sword. They're afraid of the kingdom of this world. But I don't want you to lose sight of something. They're not all running. There's one standing. Paul calls him the second Adam. He is standing to fulfill his purpose. He is standing. He's not afraid of the, of the sword of the land. He's not afraid of their kingdoms. The night before, or during that night in Gethsemane, as he cried out and as he prayed and as he sought the will of the Father and aligned his will with his, as he sought the Lord in preparation for what was coming, you need to recognize what it was that brought fear to his heart. Not the sword of man. It's the wrath of God. Look. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, you guys remember the story? Adam and Eve are put outside the garden, and a cherubim is placed in the gate, and he's got a sword, right? The cherubim's got the sword to bar their way in. So they can't come back, right? They can't come back in. They can't get back in. The only way to get back in... Is to, is to pass through or go through the sword. But that sword is not the sword of man or the sword of this the kingdom of this world. That sword is the, the sword of the Lord. His justice, divine justice, God's wrath, bars the way of man being able to come to God. No one can get into His presence without passing by that sword. They flee we flee, Jesus stays. He trades places with us. He takes the sword that separates man from God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on him to the full. He's going to fulfill it all. And he stands. Stands ready to take that place, ready to take our place. Well, from the betrayal, what happens? If, in fact, when you come with me to Israel, you're going to see, we're going to be up on a hill in, uh, uh, in the area where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And as we're up there on the side of the hill, we're going to read the scripture. We're going to talk about Jesus' uh, night and the arrest that takes place. And then we're going to get up and we're going to walk to Caiaphas' house. We're going to walk down the mountain, down into the Kidron Valley. It's not a long walk. We're going to come up the other side and we're going to get on a trail. And the trail that we get on is a trail that goes to Caiaphas' house. Now Caiaphas' house, he had a, a, a cistern that uh, was used as a dungeon where they would keep prisoners in case they needed a place to store them or put them until they could take them over to Pilate, which is a little ways away at the Antonio Fortress in Jerusalem. So we walk down and we come to Caiaphas' house. We're going 
wind down into that dungeon. We're going to sit in the dungeon where, where they held Jesus while they awaited the morning where Jesus was. Not a place like it. Not a maybe. We're going to walk on trail and stones, and it's not stones like it. They're the stones that date, by, date back to Christ. It's the same steps going up to the house. It's the same house. And you get an opportunity to see this journey that takes place leading to the trial. It says, when they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Now you've heard many times, it's, a, it's an illegal trial. We know it's an illegal trial because of the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud tells us what the rules were for a trial. And they're based on what scripture lays out for us. There's never supposed to be a trial at night. They were supposed to always have a quorum of at least 23. Now we don't know whether they had the quorum or they didn't, but we know that they didn't have the whole of the Sanhedrin. The whole of the Sanhedrin would have been 70. So... They've gathered together on that night the ones who were supportive of seeing the death of Jesus Christ. They arrested him at night so they didn't have to do it in the day when the people would see. In fact, they arrest him somewhere just after midnight. Somewhere between midnight and the sunrise. They come and they get him and they bring him to Caiaphas' house. The same day that he's arrested, he's brought to Caiaphas' house. But they have no official charge. What did they arrest him for? They don't tell you what they arrest him for. There's no official charge. And they can't find witnesses to agree. According to Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So how many witnesses did you have to have by Jewish law in order to condemn a man? At least two, right? You have to have at least two. But what's the scripture tell us here? They, the chief priests and the council sought testimony to put Jesus to death, but they found none. They couldn't find two guys to agree. They couldn't find two guys that would tell the same lie the same way. So they come, they gather, they put them together. They hold the trial at night. We also see that their motivation is a mess. Look, why did they arrest him? They want to put him to death. That's what it says, right? The chief priests sought testimony, witnesses, so they could put him to death. You're not supposed to arrest somebody so you can kill them. Right? That's not supposed to be. You're supposed to arrest them because they've done something wrong. And then you charge them and you do whatever needs to be done because of what they've done wrong. But you're not supposed to arrest them just to kill them. But that's what they're doing here. They've arrested him just to kill him. They've just brought him in so that they could put him down. And what do we see about Peter? Peter's there, right? Okay, another opportunity for Bible trivia. Who else is there? Another disciple's there. Who is it? John's there. Man, you guys are sharp. How did Peter get in? They're at Caiaphas' house, right? So so you got to know somebody to get into the high priest's house, into the courtyard. John. John lets him in. Why? Because the family Zebedee is well known to the chief priests. In fact, the Zebedee fish market is so famous... Their name's actually carved in the stone in Jerusalem. You come with us to Israel, you'll get an opportunity to see the name Zebedee from the family fish market where they sold fish, probably to the high priest himself. Which is why the high priest knew him. So John lets him in. Listen, love made Peter go. A lot of people give Peter a bad rap. Love made him go. Man, he, he could have just sat at home with everybody else, but he loved Jesus. He wanted to be there. He, he didn't know what to do or how to do things. It hadn't worked out the way he thought. He was more than willing to die with Christ. And I, sometimes I hear within the body, within, within the church, I hear people say, oh, I'm willing to die for Jesus. I'm willing to die for him. Okay, words are cheap. And dying is not all that hard. How about we live for him? Oh yeah, now it got hard. That's where it gets real. 
That's where it gets real. It's easy to die. It's easy to grab a sword when there's a bunch of guys around and whack somebody in the head and you just figure the 600 guys are going to take me out, right? Except it doesn't happen. Jesus takes away your sword. Tells you those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So he takes the sword away and he puts the ear back on a dude and he says, that's not how we're going to do this. Now, that was Peter's way. Now it's God's way. And he's, because he loves Jesus, he's there. But because of fear, there's distance. Because he loves Jesus, he's there. But because of fear, there's distance. Well, let's look at the false testimony. Verse 56. For many bear false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So they're even feeding them lines. Here's some lines. Say this. And they can't even do that part right. They can't do that part right. They can't get it put together. They're, they've come to, to bear false witness. The testimony is not consistent. What did Jesus actually say? In the Greek he said, You destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And this he spake concerning what? His body. What are they about to do? Destroy his temple. And what's going to happen in three days? He's going to raise it up again. He's going to raise it up. The resurrection is a sign. That's what Jesus was speaking of. But then things get interesting in verse 60. In Mark 14, 60, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Now remember, what did it say in Isaiah 53, 7? said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. So he doesn't say anything. He's saying, why don't, don't you have anything to say against what these men testify? But he kept silent and answered nothing. So the high priest asked him. <clears throat> so the high priest is getting frustrated. You got the quorum probably there. You got a group of 23 guys that are ready to condemn him to death, but they got a bunch of witnesses. And according to the law, they got to have two that agree that he did something wrong. <clears throat> they can't come up with two. So the high priest is going to put a question to him. And so the high priest looks at him and he says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That phrase. Are you the Christ simply means, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Son of the Blessed was a title that we would point to or, or reckon today as, are you the Son of God? But the idea of Son of the Blessed, that was a title they gave to David, the king. <clears throat> that was a title for the king. It, it didn't necessarily speak of divinity, that he's God in the flesh. It spoke of, are you the Son of the Blessed? Like from the line of David, are you the Messiah who's, who's supposed to deliver His people? That's the question they put to Him. But the answer that Jesus gives is really incredible. We don't want to miss out on what He's saying. He begins with this phrase, Ego I me. Ego I me is a Greek for I am. It's the same terms used every time uh, the Septuagint puts the, the name of God in Exodus chapter 3, every time he does it, this is perfect. It would be better if it was a monster, but... But that's pretty good. That's just what the doctor ordered. So, every time Egoimi is used, I am, it's used in the same place where the Hebrew equivalent... For I am that I am, in Exodus chapter 3. when Remember when Moses says, Who shall I tell the children of Israel has sent me? What's your name, God? And God said, God the Father said, Tell them I am. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. We come to, to John chapter 1, and it says, No man has seen God at any time. How many people have seen God? Said how many people? 
No one seeing God at every in any time, right? That's simple. It is the only begotten or the one and only Son of the Father who's in the bosom of the Father. Who's in the bosom. What does that mean? It means He's in the being. When we study the, the, the theology of God, to understand a comprehension of God, and we deal with something called the Trinity, you have one being, three persons. One being. That's what He's saying. He's... From the bosom of the Father, He's one being with the Father, but distinct person. We struggle with the concept. And, the, and for some people, that's so shocking. I don't know why. God is transcendent. That means He's bigger than us. Broader than us. Over us. The fact that we have a difficult time comprehending the ontology of God, that, that should not blow our minds. It's, it's just simply part of who God is. But the point is, Scriptures teach one being, three persons. One being, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, Jesus begins with the phrase, Ego I me. I am. He's had seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. One of those I am statements is this. Unless you believe... That ego I me, you will die in your sins. Now what in the world is he saying? Unless you believe I am? You have to believe that, that Jesus existed? Is that what he's saying? No, he's using the word I am. From Exodus chapter 3, unless you believe that I am eternal God, you will die in your sins. That's what he's saying. In, in John eight fifty eight, he says, Before Abraham was... Before Abraham was made, before Abraham was created, before the pieces of Abraham were put together, I am, not I was, I am eternal God. Who's the one putting the pieces together? Jesus. We go through the Old Testament. Remember I told you no one has seen God at any time, but there's several times in the Old Testament people see God. What's that all about? What did John 1 tell us? Who are they seeing? Jesus. Jesus. The scripture lays out, so Jesus, he's asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And the first thing he says, ego I me. Now in the gospel of John, when the people come to arrest Jesus, and they, they come up, Judas's kiss, all that stuff happens, and they say, uh, are, are you Jesus? You remember what he says? It only happens in the gospel of John. He says, ego I me, I am. What happens? They all fall down. Why? Because the name of God is power. There's power. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. They all fall down. He's still standing there. They get back up. <clears throat> they got to be tripping a little bit, don't you think? They come up to him like, you guys remember? Well, I, I don't have time. I'll, I'll tell that story later. But anyways, <clears throat> they fall down. They get back up. This is the name of power. This is the name of Almighty God. So he's saying, I am, I am. Ego, I, me. And then he makes this quotation. Look at it. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when you look at that section, it's such an incredible statement that Jesus makes here in the Gospel of Mark. And it's taken from two places. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and Psalms 110, verse 1. From those two places, Jesus is putting together this concept. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came up to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve Him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, Son of the Blessed wasn't necessarily a title that spoke of divinity. But Son of Man is. Now you might think that's backwards. Well, sorry, that's the way our minds work. But that's not the way their minds work. Why? Because the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God Almighty, God the Father standing there. <clears throat> the Ancient of 
the, the Son of Man comes up to him. I think it's a perfect picture of what occurs on the ascension when Jesus goes up to the Father. And the Father receives the Son and he says, sit here. Sit here, he tells him. He says, I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to give it to you. Dominion. All people, all nations, all languages. Your kingdom will never pass away. That Jesus puts together with Psalm 110.1. Listen, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the Bible. Most quoted verse of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted all over the place. Why? Because it's a psalm proclaiming the kingship of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110.1 it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So when we talk about this concept, Son of Man, what it means and, and what, it, uh, what it does, what we want to see <clears throat> is what Scripture tells us about it. Because if we look at all the places it's brought up in Scripture, it'll help us nail down exactly what Jesus is saying. What is He telling us? What does this title mean? What are these things all about? The Son of Man is a fully divine and exalted figure sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Now if the high priest could only have heard the, the solemn warning that he's giving, in essence he's saying to the high priest, look, you're judging me, but I'm going to come back and judge you. I'm the judge of all the earth. Why? Because he talks about the Son of Man being vindicated and enthroned. Where do we see that? Acts seven fifty six, at the death of stoning or the, the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. <coughs> on this day, Jesus, they think they're putting Jesus on trial. And Jesus is telling them, Really, you're being judged. And that judgment is going to be fulfilled by seventy AD. By seventy AD we'll see the end of the temple um, and the destruction really of Israel as a nation. When we look at the enthronement of the Son of Man, it points not only to His ascension, His resurrection, His ascension, but it also points to His return. That's Daniel 7 is talking about. The kingdom that will never end. The kingdom that begins and never stops. Remember Daniel had a dream about a statue and a stone not made by, with hands? comes out of the heavens and smashes the feet and destroys all the kingdoms of the world. They've ground up into powder and they blow away. What happens to that little stone? It grows and grows and grows until what? fills the whole earth. What is that? The kingdom of the Son of Man. The kingdom of the Son of Man. God coming to deliver His people. It says, the Son of Man at the right hand of the power. He's at the right hand of the power. The power, obviously, he's talking about the being of God. He's saying he's not only greater than David, because David did not ascend into the heavens, but he's also greater than the angels. Hebrews 1.13 To whom of the angels did he ever say, Sit here till I make your enemies your footstool. That's what the scripture is telling us about the Son of Man and the right hand of power. God exalted him. God lifted him up. Just as mankind rejected him, as man puts him down, God lifts him up. In Acts 5.30, Jesus, whom you killed, God has exalted and placed him at his right hand. The point of the scripture is telling us exactly what Jesus is laying out for. The right hand of power. He is the sovereign ruler over all the earth. The king of kings. Lord of lords. That's what he's declaring to the high priest. That's what he's telling him. He's seated. Why? Well, every priest is supposed to be standing because he's continually offer, offering offerings. But what does Jesus do? He sits. Why? Because he's going to make one offering. What's the one offering he's going to make? His body, his flesh. He's going to die. And that offering is finished. That's it. All men enter into a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ or they do not have a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except how? Except through me, right? they got to go through Jesus Christ. The work has been finished. He is seated, seated at the right hand of the power. And he's awaiting 
the final surrender. <clears throat> he's seated there when? Till his enemies are made his footstool, right? He's seated until his enemies are made a footstool. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us who the last enemy is. Who's the last enemy? The last enemy is death. Death is going to work backwards. Death is going to work backwards because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So this, this verse that Jesus is laying out points to the divine person of the Christ. The power that he's seated beside the Father. That he is one in being with the Father. And that he's coming with the clouds in judgment. He's going to judge. You think you're judging me, but I'm going to judge you. <clears throat> he is the judge of all the earth. Revelation 1.7, what does it say? Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. What are they talking about? Jesus' return in judgment. Jesus' return in judgment. So as he's standing there, he says, look, I'm the Son of Man, a, a title of deity. I'm seated at the right hand of the power. I'm one in being with Almighty God. I'm seated because my work is about finished. And I'm going to come back in judgment. You're judging me, but I'm going to come back and judge you. Now you might say, Jackie, this is so complicated. I don't know if I can get my head wrapped around all the things that you're talking about. But in essence... What he's saying is, look, today, that day, that trial, he was God in the dock. He was God on trial. Well, people always wanted to blame God for stuff, ain't they? That's the day they got to do it. God in the dock. They get to bring their charges against God. But I want you to understand something. That's not the only time that ever happened. Because before he was God in the dock, he was God on the rock. Exodus 17. Remember the story of Exodus 17? Children of Israel are complaining. Is that amazing? Oh no, it's so shocking, right? What? They're complaining? It's kind of like Democrats talking about gun control. It's like, well, of course they are. That's what they do. Well, they're complaining, the children of Israel. Let's look at it. Exodus 17. It says, all the congregation... Of the children of Israel sent out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in, in the Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Why do you tempt the Lord? What are they saying? Why are you charging God with wrong? Why are you putting God on trial? That's what he's saying. Why are you putting God on trial? <clears throat> Why do you tempt him? So the scripture says, uh, the people thirsted for water and the people complain. Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Listen. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people. Now I'm sure Moses is is thinking, ah, finally we get a chance to judge the people. Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. That's what you would do when you were setting up court. <clears throat> and take in your hand your rod. Remember the rod, the staff? Well, you want to have the rod. That's something you're going to need in court to judge the people. Go before the people. Take in your hand your rod which you struck the river and go before. Uh, behold, I will stand before you. What's it say? On the rock. You ever notice that before? I will stand before you. So Moses, I want you to go. The people are complaining and they're putting God on trial. and They're saying God's no good and he hasn't done anything for us. And God says, I'm going to go stand on the rock. Moses, you get the elders and all the people together. Grab that staff of yours. You come over. Now what's he going to do? God says, you're going to come over to that rock that I'm standing on. And you're going to you're going to smack it. You're going to strike the rock. And when he strikes the rock, the rock is going to fracture. And from the fracture of the rock is going to come water for the people. The first time, God's on trial. Well, 
What does all that have to do with anything? He does it. Moses doesn't judge the people. They blame God. We blame God. They demand God pay for their own sins. Instead of smiting us, God goes and stands on the rock. Well, what's all that mean? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Paul's going to tell us about it. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, Messiah. Broke. Broken for them. It's interesting because Moses is going to ask the Lord, Gosh, Lord, I really want to see your glory. Remember where God hides Moses? In the cleft of the rock? That little place where the fracture is, where the water comes out. He hides in that place. Look, Jesus Christ, the rod, the symbol of judgment, the rock, Christ, the rod coming down on Christ, God in the docks. It's the same thing as God on the rock. One was a picture of a reality that would take place thousand years later as Jesus Christ stands in in judgment before the high priest. And the high priest says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he says, I am. That's a phrase. I am eternal God. And he uses the term, Son of Man. The Son of Man, pointing to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, who rises up to the Father and is promised a kingdom. He points to Psalm 110.1, which says, Sit here, the work is finished. While the Father says, I'll make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying, you are judging me, but I am going to judge you. And what happens? Look, I don't want you to think that they miss it. Look what they do verse 63. The high priest does what? Tears his clothes. What further need do we have of witnesses? What do you mean, what further need? How many witnesses are you supposed to have? Two, no witnesses. This is just Jesus answering his question. You have heard blasphemy. What was blasphemous? If he wasn't saying, I am God, what was blasphemous? Well, it's blasphemous because he was saying, I am God. What do you think? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then it falls apart. Everybody goes berserk. I want you to see it. Peter, out by the fire. He's in the courtyard. Right through the double doors that open into the courtyard, you can see the trial taking place. Jesus answering, the the witnesses coming up before Him. Jesus gives the answer where He says, I am the Son of Man, and I am seated at the right hand of power, and I'm going to come back with the clouds. I'm going to come back in judgment upon you. You think you're judging me, but I'm the judge of all the earth. The high priest loses it, tears his his robe. He says, "He's, He's guilty of blasphemy. He should be dead. And all the... Sanhedrin that are there, the 23 guys, they all lose it. And they all jump on him. And they spit, and they beat, and they slap. Was a long ways before morning. Chapter 15, verse 1 is when we're going to see the morning. He's going to find himself hanging in the cistern under Caiaphas' house. (coughs) Until that morning comes says they condemned him to be deserving of death. And they, they began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hand. In Isaiah 56, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me. My cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus proclaims who he is. And they want to kill him because he's God. Look, the world has not ever wanted God. They've been trying to put him to death for a long time. They've even announced it on the papers and on the front of magazines. No? God's dead? The same attitude in the kingdom of the world is real. What is necessary to really change that kingdom is a change in the heart of men. But what if there is no change in the heart of men? That's the next part of the story. 
Look what happens. You got Peter there in all his glory, right? And everything that he can muster up in his flesh, all that he has. It says, now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. He's in the courtyard. Chaos has erupted. They're, they're beating him and dropping him down into the cistern. Peter can see it through the double doors. As that's beginning, as that's going on, uh, a servant girl from the high priest saw Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he walks away. Now the courtyard, just like a courtyard as you would picture it today, a big square area, fire pit somewhere in the middle, but there's other places you can get to. So he leaves the fire and he goes out toward the porch. He goes out toward the porch. And as he's out there toward the porch, it says a rooster crowed. Then a servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Your speech shows it. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. So we have the test of the flesh, the man who has not had his heart changed by God. The Holy Spirit is not living inside of Peter at this point. When Jesus is raised, he's going to breathe on him and say, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says it, it happens. Until that time, <clears throat> Peter has faith, he has trust, but he's not been regenerated yet. The test of the flesh, he denied being with Jesus. He denied being one of his disciples. He denied knowing Jesus at all. The test of the flesh just simply shows the failure of the flesh. Say it. We can't kingdom build. If something doesn't change us from the inside out, nothing changes. Nothing's ever different. It's always like it is. And then it says in verse 72, A second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Look, Luke 